encourage you to uh, open up to our scripture passage for today. Uh, we're looking at Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And uh, if that feels familiar, it's because we read it last week as well. Uh, for our Advent series, we are looking at what we're calling this uh, the humility of God by studying uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And so each week I'm going to read it and we're focusing on a different section as we look at it as a whole though. So Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us today as we look at this passage. Father, would you through the power of your spirit, open up some of the depths of this passage to us. Shine the radiance of Christ through it and speak to each and every one of us. Father, you know where we are. Uh, you know what is weighing on our hearts. You know what is distracting us in these moments. And we pray, Lord, that the power and glory of Christ would break through all of those things so that we would see Jesus with fresh eyes. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, uh, back uh, some 20 or so plus years ago when I was a uh, reservist Marine, I was serving in an artillery battery. And I remember we would train one weekend a month. And I remember showing up that weekend for the training and we weren't going out to the field like we normally were, but it was focused on cleaning and maintenance of all of our gear. And there was this large whiteboard in the maintenance bay and on it were all of the tasks that we were supposed to get done over this weekend. And on it was one of the tasks was to clean the drain. Now, this was in a large maintenance bay that was built for working on these big seven ton trucks and eight ton howitzers. And running all across it was about a six inch wide drain that was probably 60 feet long with a steel grate over it. And it collected all kinds of nastiness, uh, oil and hydraulic fluid. It, it seemed like it was a favorite place for people to deposit their dip and chewing tobacco after they were done with that. Uh, it had been known to collect other bodily fluids. It was just nasty in there and we were gonna have to clean it. And there on the whiteboard was clean the drain. And right next to it were two names, uh, Moncrief and Stoddard. 
uh, you know, in the movies, when someone is selected for a special military operation, it's because of their, you know, cunning or their impressive skill. But we weren't handpicked because of our skill. Uh, we were handpicked because we were the new guys in the unit. And uh, we also happened to be going to college, and not very many people were. And I think they wanted to make sure that we knew that just because we were going to college didn't make us better than any one of them. And so we were going to spend the next several hours cleaning that drain. And we did. And Jimmy Moncrief and I became best friends uh, through the experience. But imagine now some, you know, 23 or so years later, I walk back in, let's say where our unit is having a reunion, and I walk back in there, and I see a whiteboard, and it has a list of all the activities that we're going to do for the reunion. But there's also some things that need to get done, and on that list it says, clean the drain, Moncrief and Stoddard. <laughs> yeah, I'd be pretty sure it was a joke, but imagine if they were serious. No, actually, we want you to clean the drain. You can't do any of the fun stuff until you clean this nasty drain out. You know, it's one thing to make the new guys do it, the low folks on the totem pole, but it's, it's something else to ask someone who is already honorably served, uh, who is much older and now coming back for a reunion to do this menial task. I mean, it would be humiliating if they were serious. They'd say, no, you cannot have fun with us unless you clean that drain. I think that, that idea of humiliation that I would experience would be getting at what Jesus experienced when he came to earth as a savior. The one who made heaven and earth, who holds it all together, who is equal with God. But when he comes to earth, the people don't welcome him with a parade, but essentially tell him to clean the drain. This Advent, we're looking at the humility of God by examining Philippians 2, 1 through 11. We're looking at Christ's incredible humility, and we're going to focus on verses 5 through 8. And what I want you to remember is really what we're, the main point is for this entire series. Humility is God's answer to human strength. Humility is God's answer to human strength. And we're going to look at it three ways. First, fully God, and then made a servant, and then obedient to death. So first, fully God. Now, most of you expect something of an upward trajectory in your life, especially when you're in your teens or in your 20s. There are things that you would do in your 20s that you would be unwilling to do or maybe even humiliating to do in your 50s. You worked entry-level jobs when you were a teenager, but you don't expect to be applying for McDonald's when you're in your 60s. But notice our passage here, that it's not describing this ascent of Jesus, but actually it's describing this great descent of Jesus. Jesus, who started out at the highest possible position, is in very nature with God. He is equal with God. But he didn't consider holding on to that placement as necessary, and instead he takes the position of a servant. And then if that's not enough, he then takes on death itself, and not just any death, but death on a cross. Maybe you've heard that if you were a Roman citizen, the cross was considered so humiliating that if you were ordered to die, you couldn't be sentenced to death on a cross if you're a Roman citizen. So what was too humiliating for a Roman citizen was chosen by God for the way that he would die. 
And then notice verse 5, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. We talked about this last week, how humility is one of the basic marks of being a Christian. And, and we are called not to just external displays of humility, you know, things that you do that look humble that others can see, but we are called to actually have a humility that is rooted in how you think, a humility that is in your thought life. And that's kind of the opposite of our humility. Maybe you face something where you realize, if I do this, this is going to be kind of humiliating, or I've got to swallow my pride if I want to do this, if I'm going to do this thing. And why do we say that I need to swallow my pride? It's because in your mind, you don't want to do it. You don't have that, you have that pride in your thinking, that pride in your mind. And you've got to kind of suppress your thinking, just say, okay, I'm going to swallow my pride in order to do this thing that is humbling. But Jesus never swallowed his pride. Humility was at the core of his heart. This is all the more amazing because verse 6 being in very nature God. One commentator notes the word choice here by Paul that, who, who wrote this when he, he says, being in very nature God. Quote, Paul uses a stronger verb which characteristically has the force of to be really and truly, to be characteristically or by nature. This is stronger than simply saying Christ is God. Christ was really and truly in his own personal and essential nature, God. There was no higher thing that Jesus could have ascended to. There was never a time when he was not God or he was not eternal. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, God has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself. Think about that for a moment. God has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in himself and of himself. He doesn't need blessedness to come from outside. He is blessed. He exudes goodness from within himself. This is core to who Jesus is. But then in continuing verse 6, it says, he did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. A couple things in this verse can be confusing. First, I think the NIV translation is helpful here when it says he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Some translations might say something like equality with God is something to be grasped, which can maybe lead to a little bit of confusion because it might sound like Jesus is grasping for equality with God in that he's trying to reach up to where God is to pull himself up to make himself equal with God. But that's not what this is saying. Instead, we need to let the first part of the verse, he is by nature God, inform the second part. He did not consider that equality with God something to be held on to, something that he should cling to. Every one of you, maybe you've had a situation or you know people who once were at some position of power and it's really hard to let go of that power. They're clinging to that position. They're clinging to that place they had. Christ never clung to his position. He never held on to say, no, this is mine. I'm not going to let this privilege go. What we see here is we even see a hint of that Christian doctrine called the Trinity. Jesus is by nature God. And yet we also see that he's distinct from God. He is distinct from the Father. Even though Jesus was fully 
and forever God, he was willing to lay down all the privileges that came with being God. He wasn't just saying, I'm going to always just command the angels and command everybody to do what I want to get done. He said, I will make myself a servant. He, he never was going to pull his union card and say, well, I'm exempt from suffering. You know, that's not in my contract. You can't make me do that. Those of you who work, when your boss keeps asking you to do menial tasks, what goes through your mind? I think, is this what I was hired to do? Is this why I got a degree just for this, you know, meaningless stuff? Who do they think I am? But Jesus, when he was suffering, when he was mocked, when he was ridiculed by the very people that he made, he never said, who do they think I am? But instead, he let go of all the privileges and advantages of being God. He said, I'm not going to pull the God card. I'm not going to just teleport out of this. I will not say this suffering is beneath me, but I will embrace being humiliated by the people I made, the people that I've sustained, the people that I came to save. And this takes us into our second point, made a servant. In verse 7, we see that Jesus, who is in his very nature God, took on another nature, that of a servant. Royals have all kinds of honorary titles. When Prince Philip, the husband of Queen Elizabeth, died a couple years ago, his full British honors were read at his funeral. It went something like this, Thus it hath pleased Almighty God to take out of this transitory life unto his divine mercy the Most High, Mighty, and Illustrious Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, Earl of Marineth, and Baron Greenwich, Knight of the Most Noble Order of the Garter, Knight of the Most Ancient and Most Noble Order of the Thistle, member of the Order of Merit, Knight Grand Cross of the Royal Victorian Order, upon whom has been conferred the Royal Victorian Chain. That's only a quarter of his titles. What title did Jesus take on? Servant. And it's more than that. It's not just that he took on that title of servant, but as the text says, he took on the very nature of a servant. Maybe you notice that that same word nature that is used here to describe him becoming a servant was also used back in verse 6, that he was in nature God. It's the same Greek word here. It's deliberate. It's saying that Jesus is as much a servant as he is God. Here's what that means for us. Humility was invented in heaven. Think about that. Humility was invented in heaven. We often talk about being humbled. Every one of you, there's been some experience where you've been humbled. Uh, earlier this year, we we're having issues with the sound uh, system, and, and one of the little quirks that that caused was for the live stream, uh, the only thing that was being broadcast onto YouTube was my microphone for the entire service. Right? And so every song that we sang was a solo by me for everybody <laughs> on YouTube. And I like singing, but there's a reason why I don't stand over there when I sing. You know, it was a little bit humbling. But humbling, being humbled, 
isn't something that happened to God. It's something that he chose to embrace. He humbled himself. The higher you are, the harder it is to be humble. The more that you've achieved, the harder it is to give that up in humility. It's a lot harder to be told, hey, go clean the drain when you're 40 than when you're 18. But the highest one chose humility. It says he made himself nothing. This phrase has caused some confusion over the years. Sometimes it's referred to as kenosis, which is the Greek word here that is used to talk about emptying. And it doesn't mean that Christ emptied himself of his deity. In becoming a servant, he never stopped being God. What it means, though, is that Christ, he, he concealed his glory. It means that he laid down all of the privileges and rights that come with being an eternal God, and he, lay, he willfully laid down everything that he could demand of us, everything that he would desire, and said, I'll count all the privileges that come with being God and being able to command angels at an instance. I will give all of that up, and I will become a servant. He doesn't say, I'll act like a servant. I'll just dress like a servant. Say, no, I will become a servant. When asked to clean out the drain, I won't complain about it, but I will embrace even the most humiliating of work. One commentator wrote, Christ did not empty himself of something. He simply emptied himself. And that first step of Christ's humiliation and being made a, a servant was being made a human. And, and don't let that word human likeness confuse you as if Jesus only looked human. He took on a human nature. That's what it means when he took on the nature of a servant. He was fully human. Jesus became so human that Mary could hold God in her hands. Can you imagine that? Those of you that have had kids, you remember that moment when you first hold your child and, and they're so tiny and so helpless. And there, imagine Mary holding Jesus, the Jesus who is holding all creation together, is being held in the hands of a teenage mother. On that first Christmas, God came wrapped in a five-pound, nine-ounce package. He emptied himself. He made himself a servant. And this then takes us to our third point, obedient unto death. Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ's humility had no limit. There wasn't a line as there is for so many of us where you say, all right, I'll deal with this up to a point, but after this, I can't handle that anymore. I can't stand being humiliated and being taken advantage of over and over and over again. But for Christ, there was no limit. There was no place where he said, that's enough. I can't do this anymore. Do you guys know who I am? Humility filled Christ's dying breath. The God who could have commanded that cross to bow down to him was nailed to it. The Jesus who could have done 
some sort of Hulk-like transformation and ripped those nails right out of that wood, chose not to. The Jesus who healed hundreds of people chose not to heal himself, but he humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross. Most of you know Roman crucifixion was a particularly cruel way of killing someone. It was designed to not just kill the person, but it was designed to humiliate them in the process. This is why Roman citizens were exempt from it. You could be sentenced to death, but you couldn't be sentenced to death by crucifixion. It was too humiliating for a Roman citizen. Crucifixions took place often at a busy crossroad so that lots of people would see it. The individual was stripped of most of their clothes, and the way that they would die was uh, through asphyxiation. Their body was so twisted and crunched that their abdomen was compressed and they couldn't get any air in their lungs. And so in order to breathe, they had to push up with their legs against those nails in their feet and pull up with their arms against those nails in their wrists and and try to get up enough uh, so that they could take a breath and then collapse back down. And by one painful, gasping breath after another, the person hung there often for hours, sometimes for days, until they ran out of strength or passed out and couldn't take another breath. And that way of dying, unfit for even a common Roman citizen, was how God chose to die. That shows us the heart, the mind of Christ. He wasn't acting like a servant. He became a servant. One commentator put it this way, is this the mind of Christ? To take what is best and greatest and most desirable to oneself and to abandon it freely in the interest of a greater purpose. And what is that greater purpose? Why did Christ choose to be humiliated? It's because he wants to have his people He wants to have you. He wants to heal you. He wants to save you from yourself and your own addictions and your past, your sin, your evil, those things that you feel like will never change about you. Isaiah 53 is so powerful. It says, He, Christ, was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. But Isaiah continues. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. Because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. Friends, this is the love that God has for sinners while they're still sinners. This is the love that God has for people who turn their backs on him and look the other way. And it should be comforting to us because what it means is that Christ has completely saved you because he has become exactly like you. He didn't just look like a servant on the outside. He didn't just dress like a human on the outside. He became fully human and he embraced the worst parts about us. 
He came to you at your lowest. He came to you at your weakest. He came to you when you were passed out in the drain. And Christ doesn't look at you in that state and say, oh, just reach up and grab me. Pull yourself up. I'm so close. You just got to just reach a few inches and I'll take you. But Christ humbled himself down into the muck to step into the drain where we are, to, to take you at your worst and to pick you up and to bring you home. When there was nothing lovely about you, you were lovely in Christ's eyes. When there was nothing th- that would make you wanted, you were wanted by Christ. You were so treasured by him that he humbled himself even when you turned your back on him, but he would not stop loving you. And he would chase you and he would find you and he would bring you home. Will you give yourself to this God? Will you humble yourself to realize that Jesus I need is the one who reveals something so much darker about myself than I want to admit? But he knows me and he still loves me. And Paul is saying that that amazing mindset that Christ has for his people is the same type of mindset that we are then called to have for each other. Paul's writing to the Philippian church. They they were a church that was struggling with divisions in the church, complaining, bickering. And to deal with that, bickering in the church, Paul just went really deep, right? Like, He points us to Christ on the cross. It feels like Paul is taking out a sledgehammer to deal with a fly. But Paul here gives us, he dives deep to give you this test case for what should the limits of your humility be? Because every one of you, you wonder that in those hard situations with someone that's difficult to deal with, in a situation where you've got to apologize for something that you know, yes, maybe you screwed up, but not as much as the other person thinks. You've got to put yourself out there where maybe you won't look good. And you say, but can I handle this? Isn't that too far? And Paul says, look where Christ went. There was nothing that was too far from him. The eternal, the all-powerful, the all-knowing God approached death, even death on a cross for these people. What excuse do you have for not showing humility with those around you? When it came for God to make his entrance into the world, for that long-expected Messiah to come, to begin his work of healing and making all things new, to break the power of sin and evil, he did not come with a sword in his hand, but he came lying in a manger in humility. Humility is God's answer to human power. Pursuing humility in your life is so much stronger than all the beans or bullets or band-aids that you can collect. It's through the humility of the cross that Christ disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. Colossians 2.15. Now, this is a hard thing for us to do. Is every one of you, there's places where you don't want to show someone your weakness. You don't want to show someone that humility. But God's answer 
to conquering evil starts with humility. Now, this humility doesn't mean you don't ever stick up for yourself or you just act like the world's doormat. It doesn't mean that you never take steps to prepare for potentially bad situations that are coming. It doesn't mean that you don't bring to light evil that someone is, is doing against you. Continuing to let someone get away with evil or sin is not loving. We should bring those things to light. Humility doesn't mean you just suffer in silence for the rest of your life. I think what it means for most of us is it means you stop trying to trust in yourself, in your own strength, in your own grit, your own ability to figure it out, your own ability to hold things together, your ability to endure, your ability to plan. And you put your life, and you put your fears, and you put all those things that you're trying to hold together by your own strength, and you give them to God, and say, your will be done. I'll walk the path that you've laid before me. And that path might be hard. It might be scary. You might not know what lies around the next bend. And you'll have to admit that you're not in control. But you say, I will humbly trust you, God, over my own trying. And I will give everything to you. Practically, what does this look like? All kinds of things. It means... We should be quick to admit when we're wrong. You don't double down on why, you're, why you were wrong. You don't give excuses. You have the humility to say, you know what? I was wrong. I screwed up. I'm sorry. Humility means you confess your sins to God and to any other people that you've wronged. It's really hard to tell someone else you've messed up, right? Particularly if they've also, you know, sinned against you. But humility allows you to own your own mistakes your own sins. I mean, think about it. Christ owned your sins all the way to the grave. There wasn't a moment where he said, well, actually, this isn't my sin. It's, it's John's. <laughs> you know, let him get in here and suffer. Christ embraced your sins unto death. How can you then not embrace the ways you've hurt others and seek forgiveness? Show you're sorry. Humility means letting other people Interrupt your schedule sometimes, or your plans. It doesn't mean you have to drop everything you're doing whenever anyone asks. That might not be loving for those that are depending on you. But I know for me personally, there's a lot of times when I'd rather just do what I want because I want to do it, rather than being willing to hit pause on what I want to do to go help somebody else or serve somebody else, give someone else joy. Humility means you don't judge other people by their worst intentions while always judging yourself by the best of your intentions. You're not always looking down at everyone else, but you're trying to find the best in them. Jesus changed the world through his humility. When the one who made earth came to earth, and people didn't welcome him with joy, but told him to clean the drain, worse, condemned him to die in the drain. He didn't lash out at them and say, you don't know who I am but he embraced it so that he could embrace you and me. Will you let Christ's humility transform your life? Let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask that you would help us to do this. This is such a, a deep and hard teaching because for each of us, there are places where we are afraid 
to be humble. We're afraid to show our limits. We're afraid to show our weaknesses. We're afraid to show where maybe we messed up. But Father, in those moments, show us Christ who was humbled even to death on a cross. And then in that moment that looked like weakness, when he put his hands, or when he put his life into the hands of his Father, there was not a stronger place he could be. And so, Father, help us to trust you to put our lives, our plans, into your hands to see our limits and to be humble people and to realize we will be so much stronger when we are resting in humility than trying to act like we have it all together. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.